When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everyone, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. This is a special episode on our new special series, A Seat at the Table. Basically, in this series, we will be looking at a cabinet member beginning with the Washington presidency and going forward from there, being able to take some time to highlight some figures that we've talked about in the podcast, but maybe weren't able to do more of a deep dive into. And for this series, I'm actually going to be joined by special guests. And our special guests today are Rob and Jamie from Totalis Rankium. Welcome. Hello. Hello. So glad y'all are here. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us for this special series. Before we get started, I wanted to give y'all a moment. Uh, I know that we've got a number of listeners from presidencies who are also Totalis Rankium fans, but for those who may not have found your podcast yet, tell us a little bit about Totalis Rankium. Um, well, we we are a podcast where yep. uh, we, <laughs> doing well so far, uh, we rank people uh, totalously. Uh, and we rank presidents. We also rank emperors, but I, I think the presidents is more uh, linked to your podcast. So let's focus on that. We have been ranking every single president from Washington, and we're going to go all the way up to sort of Biden, depending how far through his presidency uh, he has got by the time we finish. If he survives. Who knows? Who knows? I, could, anything could happen, Jamie. Anything. Anything. And we'll cover that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we uh, we sort the uh, well, we go through the biography of the presidents, and then we put them into rounds, and we judge them using an arbitrary scoring system that uh, everyone fully agrees with when we yeah. publish the episodes. Not subjective at all. No, yeah, it's great. Well, and and that's why I knew y'all would be great guests for this. Uh, series because we are actually going to do a little bit of ranking at the end of this. Yes, um, we'll, excellent. We'll get to that. But also, I saw that you're doing a new um, series for Patreon on yes. the Founding Fathers. We are in the process of setting that up. I'm very excited by it. Um, approximately five years ago, I decided I really wanted to, to do an episode on Hamilton, and I've been trying to figure out a way ever since. So, um, yeah, we are going to look at founding fathers. Uh, so we'll be looking at the t- likes of Hamilton, likes of Burr. Um, we can have a look at Franklin, mm. who we had to completely <clears throat> skip over. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, all the interesting characters. Well, I'm not sure how strict we're going to be when we say founding fathers. It might just be anyone who was around roughly at the time who sounded interesting. Uh, but, yeah, so... <laughs> Uh, we're going to do that. They're going to be multiple part episodes. It's not mm. going to be a set two episodes. Uh, so they'll run as long as they need to run to, to cover the details of the life. And the great thing is we're basing on Hamilton. We're doing an R&B style, which is... Yes, yeah. Uh, that, 
Hamilton episode will all be musical. Yeah. Um, Jamie has been practicing his hip hop. Yeah. Yo, yo. Yeah. <laughs> well, I definitely look forward to hearing that. And I actually, I figured that Hamilton was going to be a part of that series. So I deliberately did not choose Hamilton for us to do for this episode. Oh, you see, the thing is, listeners, um, Jerry has not told us who we're doing. No. So I'm really interested. I thought it might be Hamilton just because, I mean, Hamilton's a good choice to start, uh, but it's not. So who's it going to be? Or are you Are you ready to tell us yet? I am ready to reveal. Our subject today is going to be Henry Knox. Ooh, sexy Knox. <laughs> he knocks on doors sexy and Knox. breaks down patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, excellent. Great. No, I, I'm pleased with that. Knox, Knox is a good one. And I was trying to remember how much you covered on Knox in the Washington episode. I couldn't remember. Oh, um, He's mentioned once or twice, wasn't he? Okay, you're, you're testing me now because this was... Oh, how long ago did we do Washington? Let's listen to the entire Washington episode <laughs> and we'll know. I think um, I think it's, it's about four years ago now. Uh, but if I remember correctly, he was mentioned a couple of times. We decided that he uh, didn't wear his top very often uh, and had lots of muscles. And I think that's the only thing we decided to get about him, which is, yes. I also know, not true. But <laughs> we decided it was. Yeah. So you, you'll be able to put us on the right track. Well, I, I look forward to it. And having done the notes for this, we've got some interesting things to talk about. So let's just get started. And and that's the thing. Uh, Henry Knox really doesn't get much of a spotlight. So I'm looking forward to having a chance to really examine him. And then at the end, taking some time to talk about his impact and what he brought to the table. So just to get us started, he was born on July 25th, 1750 to William and Mary Knox. Uh, his parents were Ulster Scots who came to the U.S. in 1729. Does that mean they're from, when you say Ulster to us, that means Irish and they say Scots, that means Scottish. Is that both? Yes. Yeah, so um, it's also referred to as Scots-Irish here. And um, they they had a number of folks who would go to Ulster and then come to the, the colonies at that point. Okay. Yeah. Mm. And actually, where, where I live in the Charlotte area, we had we have a, a good, sizable Scots-Irish community here. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so his father was a shipbuilder. Unfortunately, he suffered a financial downturn, and he left his family and went to St. Eustatius, which is an island in the Caribbean. Unfortunately, he passed away there in 1762. So uh, at this point, uh, Henry Knox was 12 years old. But growing up, he actually studied at the Boston Latin School, and he learned Greek, Latin, European history, and arithmetic. It still amazes me how, like, they... Like even even though the colonies are so far away, they're still learning Greek and Latin because they're still the classical languages. It's well, well, they've got to do the yeah, <laughs> the high five, yeah. <laughs> the high five whenever they make a, a so Latin they, reference. They were obsessed. <laughs> they were obsessed with the classical world back then. They really were. So, un- unfortunately, you know, when his father died, he actually had to leave school to clerk at a bookstore in order to earn money for his mother. And the owner of the store became like a surrogate father for young Henry, and he encouraged his love of reading. He even allowed him to take home books from the store in order to read. And so Henry used this opportunity to teach himself French as well as advanced mathematics. 
That is, yeah. uh, how is that possible? That in fact, you can like take a book and just learn advanced maths. Surely that that shows the level of intelligence that I'm not. I'm not really used to. <laughs> no, no internet. No internet. Yes. No, no Google. And that helps. They didn't have too much to do. So advanced mathematics. You know, <laughs> yeah. They're equivalent of Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um. One of the things that he was really interested in was warfare and ancient battles. And so we'll see kind of as his career goes, he really draws on that and goes into the military career. But before that, he was actually a member of a street gang when he was younger. Nice. (gasps) Did they have tattoos? I'm assuming they had tattoos. Uh. (laughs) So when he wasn't, you know, learning advanced mathematics, he was out with the gang. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> typical childhood, really, isn't it? Do you think it's a math? Do you think it's a maths gang? It's like algebra versus calculus kind of thing. Probably. That- I mean, those two sides can get. I mean, violent. yeah, well, definitely, yeah. yeah. They, they got really wild with the maths. <laughs> <laughs> but um, when he was eighteen, so you know that love of warfare and battles, he opted to serve in a local artillery company called the Train. And so at this point, you know, Boston was really becoming a rather volatile place. This was when the tensions were starting to build. Henry was actually, he actually witnessed the Boston Massacre in 1770. But despite his interest in war, he actually tried to convince the British soldiers to return to their quarters during the Boston Massacre in order to avoid conflict. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, even at this young age, he's getting involved in things that you know, would ultimately lead to the American Revolution. Do you think that was, do you think he had that view because, because he'd been studying it for so long, he had such an interest in it, it's like, this isn't the way to do it, sort of thing. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the, the Boston Tea Party is, is really fascinating, That you get the impression that if you were there, you probably would not have thought that it would resonate through history quite as much as it did. It's one of those sort of scuffly things, and yes, it's bad, and what's going on? I'm not convinced he would have been thinking of grand visions of history whilst witnessing that. And it's funny that you mention that, because we don't know if he participated in in the Boston Tea Party, but he was a lookout prior to the Boston Tea Party. He was a lookout to make sure that no tea was unloaded from one of the ships that was involved. So again, you know, a witness to something that would eventually, but like you said, Rob, I, I don't think at the time they necessarily knew where this would lead to. And, but, but it's still fascinating to think that, you know, here he was at this young age witnessing events that we would be talking about for centuries. Yeah. But Boston was the place to be at that time. Absolutely. It's even worse for him because he's a massive T fan as well. So <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people were massive T fans back then. Yeah. They were. There must have been people that, like stored it. Like, you know, they've got a few like bags off the ship. So I'm going to, I'm going to save this. This is going south kind of thing. <laughs> just, just in case the yeah. just in case mm-hmm. tea. Yeah. Well, and especially he would, he would need tea because um, in 1771, he actually opened up his own bookstore. And with that, he stocked up on books on military science. Surprise, surprise, from his interest in warfare. <laughs> yeah. And he actually used the opportunity because at the time, you know, there were many British soldiers in Boston. So he used the opportunity to talk to them about the military. That's quite nice. This is like getting a first-hand account. Exactly. And he started to put this uh, knowledge into practice. In 1772, he co-founded the Boston Grenadier Corps. And he became its second in command. 
Now, around this time, he suffered a setback. The day before his 23rd birthday, he went out hunting and he accidentally discharged a gun, which shot off two fingers from his left hand. That's not good. Nasty. You should never put your fingers in front of the barrel. No, not a good idea. That's your first lesson right there. First lesson about warfare. That is not where your hand goes. He obviously is not reading those books. He shot off two fingers. He shot off two fingers. Was it at the same time, or did he accidentally (laughs) shoot off one finger, and then later on that day, oops, it's happened again. As far as I know, it was at the same time, but let's hope. (laughs) (laughs) That sinking feeling after you've lost the second finger, it's like, oh, not again. And and so he was out hunting, so he had to get, you know, try and bandage it up as best as possible and get to a doctor. And the doctor sewed up the wound. And so, you know, at at this point, it took him some time to recover. And he was very self-conscious about the wound. I I mean, as you would be, because, you know. Well, he can only count to three, so. That's really going to scupper his advanced mathematics. Exactly. He can't use his fingers to count anymore. Exactly. Well, and, and, you know, somebody asked, well, well, how did, how are you wounded? Well, (laughs) I shot them (laughs) off myself. He was so self-conscious about the wound that he practiced wrapping a handkerchief around it so that it wouldn't be noticeable. And apparently for the rest of his life, like even when he sat for portraits, he would have a handkerchief on his left hand. Oh, wow. Yeah. So surely if you're rich enough though and famous enough, you just say like, just, just paint in a couple of extra digits and it'd be fine. Exactly. Just, just imagine what they were like. Yeah. I mean, look at the other three and imagine <laughs> two more. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's so weird though, because all the portraits have three thumbs, but it's fine. <laughs> but, you know, he did come back from this and, he ended up in 1774 getting married to Lucy Flooker. So him and Lucy um, fell in love. Unfortunately, Lucy's father objected to the marriage. Lucy's father was more of a loyalist. And so due to their differing political views, he really wasn't happy about them getting married, but they went ahead and did it anyway. Mm. And Lucy's brother actually tried to convince Knox to serve in the British army. Her brother was serving in the army Knox, of course, declined. Yeah. And he would go on, you know, and, and you know, shortly after they got married, uh, we have the battles of Lexington and Concord in April 1775. But in terms of his relationship with Lucy, the two would ultimately have three children, although only one lived to adulthood. So uh, it's typical yeah. of the time, isn't it? Unfortunately, child mortality was a reality for them. You know, this is such a, a massive time so much going on, you know, as they're starting their marriage with the battles of Lexington and Concord and things really heating up in the Boston area, uh, Henry and Lucy had to flee the city. And unfortunately his bookshop was looted and his stock was either stolen or destroyed. And so that was his exit from the bookshop business. Yeah. He instead went into service and he actually directed the cannon fire against the British in the Battle of Bunker Hill. Oh, really? So he's starting to put that that military knowledge and warfare. He realized, let's point the cannons at 
in the right direction. Yeah. My hand. <laughs> yeah, he learned by this point. I, I, I was going to say, how was he selected to be in charge of the cannons? Was it just a case of, you look book smart, and like you can tell which direction <laughs> the enemy's in? And And honestly, I think it pretty much was that. Oh, this is a guy who knows mathematics, he knows about warfare. Sure, let's put you in charge of the cannons. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. Desperate times. Yeah. And so um, shortly after this, General George Washington, who y'all know quite well, took command of the Continental Army. And although Knox didn't have a commission at the time, he did still work with Washington and the other generals. But he did end up getting a commission, a fellow Massachusetts. Massachusetts. (laughs) That's a word. Citizen of Massachusetts. (laughs) Uh, John Adams lobbied the Second Continental Congress and got Knox commissioned as a colonel of the artillery regiment. And so, you know, at this point, we're at the Siege of Boston and the Continental Army needs more cannons. Now, they knew that Forts Ticonderoga and Crown Point had been taken in upstate New York and that they had some cannons there. That was 300 miles away. And, you know, General Washington and the other generals were saying around, well, what do we do? How can we get those cannons here? Because back then you didn't you didn't have cars. You can't just drive there and didn't didn't have roads. No roads. (laughs) It was this. We were about to hit. So I'm going to stay silent. We're about to hit the uh, the one moment that Knox appeared in our our episode. Okay, so I remember this part. So I'll let you you. Okay, so so no limousines. Carry on. <laughs> no limousines. <laughs> <laughs> but Knox, with his gumption, was like, "I can do that. I can bring him on his back." I'm I'm assuming. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, just you know, pile them on. Come on, yeah, guys, we can do this. We can do this. We can, we can muster through. So he took an expedition, and despite the obstacles that were presented by icy rivers and snowfield mountains. Over the course of six weeks, he brings these cannons to Boston. He arrives and delivers them to Washington on January 27, 1776. And his route is actually marked today by the Henry Knox Trail. And it's a trail that runs through New York and Massachusetts. I was going to say in January as well, the weather's not going to be very clement, is it? It's going to be a bit... No. A bit bad. But somehow, Knox did it. That's amazing. (laughs) And this was the part in the Washington episode where you speculated he came swaggering into the camp with no top on, showing yes. his rippling muscles with a big cannon over his shoulder. Yeah. yeah. Well, Here's ca- our cannon. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go, lads. Plug this. Yeah. Yeah. And and so these cannon were were pivotal to the Siege of Boston. So again, you know, we have Henry Knox, even at this this early point in his career, making a, a sizable impact. Yeah. So after this point, he goes to work on improving defenses in Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York City. He stays with Washington and his army through the New York and New Jersey campaigns in 1776, 1777. Uh, he established an armory at Springfield, Massachusetts, which was key to American efforts during the war. Now, there was an attempt by Congress to supplant Knox as the head of the artillery. But, you know, at this point, he had established this great reputation. I mean, you know, the, the cannons alone. Come on. (laughs) And so (laughs) Knox, along with generals Nathaniel Green and John Sullivan, threatened to resign if 
Knox was removed as head of the artillery. And so Congress did some thinking and they're like, okay, he can stay. It's fine. Good. It's fine. So now while he did take part in key battles, uh, such as Brandywine and Monmouth, one of Knox's key contributions at this time was the establishment of the Continental Army's first school for artillery and officer training. And he trained over 1,000 soldiers with this, and it was the precursor to the U.S. Military Academy, which is better known as West Point. Heard of West Point. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that start at like kindergarten level, then sort of work their way up? <laughs> We've got to start them early with the advanced mathematics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've uh, we've come across West Point a few times in our podcast. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah so like a well-known. We are going to come across West Point again in our next mm. episode. Yeah, okay. little teaser for you there. Was, we're about to do Eisenhower. I like Ike. Yeah, and for for listeners, I'm actually wearing my I like Ike T-shirt. So. Nice. <laughs> deliberately because i knew eisenhower was coming up next on to <laughs> but back to knox so you know he he's playing this pivotal role in building up the military establishment and that's the thing through knox's career you see this commitment to a professional army mm. really trying to make a force that was well trained and well provisioned which i'm guessing really went against the grain of a lot of people at the time because exactly a lot of people at the time really resented the idea or were nervous about the idea of a a professional army that could do things such as oppress the people exactly and and we'll see that more as we get further into his career he would come up against this opposition time and time again this idea that a professional army could threaten the nation could threaten mm. liberties and he was like but we have to defend ourselves <laughs> yeah yeah we 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 we've, we've got to defend ourselves how are we going to do it so he becomes one of these voices that is really pushing for a professional army so for his efforts knox was actually promoted to major general in march 1782 and he became the army's youngest general but as the war was wrapping up and knox was involved with negotiations with the british for prisoners exchange and he also worked with the continental congress and the secretary at war benjamin lincoln about pensions and overdue compensation for the troops so while all this was going on unfortunately knox suffered a personal loss his nine-month-old son passed away oh and he was pretty devastated for a bit yeah it's gonna crush you yeah yeah but He still soldiered on, and so when Congress began to demobilize the Continental Army, Washington awarded Knox with the day-to-day command for the remainder of the Army. And and that shows just how much Washington trusted Knox, that he would hand over command to this youngest general in the Army. Yeah. And with Washington's resignation as commander-in-chief, Knox then went on to become the senior officer of the Army. But he wouldn't remain in this position for long because Benjamin Lincoln, the Secretary of War, resigned, and it was recommended to Congress that Knox fill that position. Unfortunately, Congress didn't really think that they needed the position. Hmm. So they pushed for a plan to have a standing militia force in lieu of a peacetime standing army. So again, we're getting to that, you know, let's get away from a professional army. Let's just really focus on militia troops, the citizen soldiers. And with that, you know, if you don't have a, an army, why do you need a secretary to run the army? 
Yeah. Mm. And so naturally, Knox was very frustrated at this, and he ended up resigning his commission in early 1784. He went back to Massachusetts, where he established a home in Dorchester. And at this time, he started to sort through some land holdings in Maine, including some land that had been confiscated from his loyalist in-laws, so Lucy's side of the family. He really started, and, and again, we see this numerous times, this land speculation, trying to use land for wealth. Uh, Knox was a part of that as well. But eventually, Congress realized, well, we really do need a secretary, and we do need at least some standing army ish. So they came back to Knox and said, would you be the secretary? And he was like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> Fair enough. So he became, he was appointed secretary at war on March 8th, 1785. And, and I do say this, it, the title at the time was secretary at war, even though they were <laughs> at peace. Nice. The secretary at war. Get a <laughs> sense of urgency. <laughs> yeah. Do you think Knox fully understood what that meant? Did, was he putting on like armor and go, right, I need to fight them. I'm, I'm at war. Or was it easy kind of like, no, I get it. I understand the role. And, and he probably needed the armor for Congress. But fair that, enough. That, yeah. With, with his fights with them. Um, yeah. <laughs> but part of the reason why Congress was starting to see a need for at least some type of standing army was at the time frontier conflicts with, um, native peoples were on the rise. And so they authorized a ramp up of a 700 man army in 1785. But this army, you know, 700 people, that's a fraction of the folks that the army had during the revolutionary war. So, yeah. you know, how much were they really going to be able to achieve? And Knox struggled with recruitment and with management. He only had two people that were helping him manage the war department. Wow. So, you know, it, it was really a struggle to be able to make anything with Congress giving him so little to work with. Do you know where they were based at this time? So at this time, um, I'm pretty sure it was still Philadelphia. With the troops, they were mostly in what became the uh, Northwest Territory. So the, the American Midwest now. Yeah. That was really their focus. But Knox would probably be uh, back in Philadelphia running things with Congress. Probably half out of a hotel room as everything was <laughs> quite slapdash at that time. I, I do love hearing the origins of these, what would become these huge, huge systems like the War Department. And just imagining back when it was just three Two people. men in a pub. Yeah, yeah just, just <laughs> trying to, to make it work against all the political op opposition. Yeah. I mean, at this point, the Pentagon was just a drawing on you know, a, a <laughs> piece of paper. It, it was a doodle that Knox was doing while someone was talking to him. So, what shape's that? I think it's a five-sided shape. Pentagon? <laughs> yes! That'll do. <laughs> we'll have one of those. <laughs> so, so Knox, you know, is struggling with making anything work with this. So he ended up coming up with a proposal. He proposed an army that was primarily composed of state militia with reforms to the militia system. So at the time, um, the militia systems were, there really weren't standards. So you had some folks that were well-equipped and well-trained, but mostly folks were, well, we don't really have weapons. Let's just 
I guess we can march around for a few minutes, but yeah, let's just get drunk. Come on. (laughs) Being part of the army, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's bonding. It's, you've got to build up those relationships. It's character building. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And, and Knox was like, okay, that's a recipe for disaster. People are going to be shooting off their fingers. (laughs) I've heard that that happens sometimes. So let's, let's really get a system going here. Again, Congress initially rejected this proposal. And he, of course, he wanted a military academy. You know, he had he had sponsored that during the Revolutionary War. Congress rejected that as well. We don't want training. We don't want a professional army. So, what for context reasons? Why why was the government so against that national army? So, part of it is that they thought that this would become a new aristocracy and an armed aristocracy that could potentially, you know, take away everybody's freedoms and liberties and yeah. establish, you know, a, a monarchy or, or whatever. There was this big fear about liberties being violated I if mean, there was look this, at the this British. standing army. The British had a standing army. Yeah. And you don't want to be like them. No. No. <laughs> Good Lord, no. Gosh. Anything that the British did. No, we don't want to do yeah, that. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but... Things are continuing to get worse for the Confederation government. So at this point, we have Shays' Rebellion in Western Massachusetts in 1786. This was an armed domestic uprising, uh, protesting about taxation. And with these increased tensions, Congress is starting to, well, maybe we do need some kind of force. Mm-hmm. We don't want a big one. We just... Maybe we need a few folks. Just, just enough to put down some farmers if they cause some yeah. problems. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just hoping somebody turned up with like a, I've got an idea for a banner. It's got like a massive crown on it. Like, <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. You're essentially talking about John Adams. Yeah, John Adams. <laughs> Bless him. <laughs> so at this point, they end up having the Constitutional Convention. Knox wasn't involved in that. But he did play a role in it because George Washington was reluctant to participate. And mm. um, as as you saw on your episode on Washington, Washington always had his image in mind. <laughs> and he yeah. he was really concerned about, well, what if this fails? What if it doesn't work? You know, how is this going to impact my image and what I'm able to do? But Knox convinces him, and um, Knox actually responded to him when Washington asked him, should he attend? Knox responded, quote, It would be a circumstance highly honorable to your fame in the judgment of the present and future ages, and double entitle you to the glorious epithet, father of your country. And so, you know, here we, we can see Knox knows how to get to Washington. He knows yeah. what motivates him. You're going to struggle not to turn up after someone says that to you. Exactly. Yeah. And and so Washington says, okay, I'm going, I'm going. They have the Constitutional Convention. Constitution was ratified. <laughs> Short version Washington becomes the first president. <laughs> and so now we have the the new government under the Constitution with Washington at its head as the first president. When he assumed control over what was the executive branch, there were actually only two departments that were holdovers from the Confederation government. So the Department of Foreign Affairs and Knox's Department of War. 
So that means he also inherited Knox as part of this new transition. Now, Congress, you know, when, when Congress convenes, they start to think, okay, well, you know, maybe we need to come up with new executive departments. Maybe we can reorganize things a little bit. And so they established the new War Department and Washington has a decision to make, you know, who should head the War Department. Oh, wait, there's this guy, Knox. You know, he's been around for a bit. He knows what's going on. And so he decides to keep Knox at the War Department. He sends his nomination to the Senate and it's accepted without question. So now we have we have Knox as Secretary of War. Uh, he assumed the office on September 12, 1789. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Now, with this new War Department, in addition to running the army, Knox and the War Department, they were also responsible for negotiations with Native nations. And so Knox is involved with a few notable treaties because Washington's policy, and and Knox was fully in support of this policy, was that instead of just rushing in and forcing Native peoples off of land, we need to negotiate with them. We need to to try and find a peaceful solution. So he is involved with the Treaty of New York in 1790 um, with the Muskoki, who are also referred to as the Creek. And this was actually one of the few that was actually signed on the eastern seaboard, you know, not in not on the frontier. Yeah. Um, it was signed in New York City, which was the capital city at the time. Hmm. He was involved with the Treaty of Holston, uh, which it was in 1792 with the Cherokee. And this established the terms of relations between the U.S. and the Cherokee moving forward. It stated that the Cherokee people were under the protection of the United States huh. and that the U.S. would manage future foreign relations for the Cherokee. See, initially, that sounds quite nice, doesn't it? It's like quite a nice uh, proposal. But we know how that ends <laughs> up and yeah. not so well. And and we will talk about that towards the end. So he also was involved in a treaty with the Iroquois in 1794, which affirmed land rights in upstate New York, and the Treaty of Greenville in 1795, which we'll get back to in just a moment. So while Knox and the federal government recognized that the lands that the Native peoples occupied were theirs, so they were actually, they, they saw them as being held by the Native peoples. Despite the Treaty of Paris, which basically said all this land is now the U.S., even though they they try for, well, let's negotiate land rights and let's negotiate this, on the ground, numerous tactics were taken by agents of and negotiators for the U.S. government to persuade Native peoples to come to terms favorable to the U.S. So even in this process, there's some shady stuff going on. And that's definitely something that we do need to consider Mm. when looking at Knox's legacy. But I did want to note this quote from Knox biographer Mark Poles. Um, He wrote, quote, Knox held the rights of Indians to be equal with those of white settlers and demanded that crimes committed against the tribes be punished. 
So Knox did express his concern over the future of Native peoples, and he asserted that, quote, our modes have been more destructive to the Indian natives than the conduct of the conquerors of Mexico and Peru. That's quite self-aware, isn't it? It's pretty good. Yes. Mm. Yes. So, you know, that's definitely important to consider. And and this was a, a large portion of Knox's work at the War Department. Now, even though they had these these treaties that they were negotiating, they also had war, what's been dubbed the Northwest Indian War. So basically, this was in the Northwest Territory, which is now, again, the American Midwest. Knox's time would really be focused on what was going on in the Northwest Territory, which had been created under the Confederation government initially. And the federal government planned to use the land sales in this territory to raise revenue, but they had to get things more settled on the frontier before they could do that and have settlers come. So prior to Washington's inauguration, the territorial governor, Arthur St. Clair, negotiated the Treaty of Fort Harmer. Now, in this treaty, the native signatories agreed to relinquish control of certain lands, which could then be opened up for white settlement. So again, we're, we're talking about, you know, let's don't just rush in and take the land. Mm. Let's negotiate things. Makes sense. The problem with this, and, and again, we get to those shady land deals. Mm-hmm. Many native leaders had not been invited to the negotiations <laughs> or some had said, you know what, we really don't want to give up our land. So no, we're not going to negotiate. But St. Clair insisted, you know what, we had a few folks show up, they signed. So it applies to everybody. Uh, of course it does. Of course it does. This person here looks vaguely similar to all the other people. So obviously their word must mean that they all agree. <sighs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So naturally, the Native peoples were not too pleased about this well you wouldn't be would you you wouldn't be people are trying to take your home your land so a loose confederacy um, comes together and bands together to defend their lands now to go ahead and quell these hostile parties general josiah harmer was put in charge of a force of around 1500 militiamen that was sent into the region and they were soundly defeated in october 1790 Mm. Out of these 1,500 men, 129 were killed and 94 were wounded. It was an absolute disaster. And once news came back to the eastern seaboard and to the capital, the administration, including Knox, were criticized. Um, This was the worst defeat of U.S. forces by Native peoples to that point. But wait, there's more. Hey. So... Things continued to increase tensions in in the Northwest Territory, so they decide, let's put together another force. Let's put St. Clair into command. St. Clair had been a general during the um, Revolutionary War, so he's already there. He kind of got us into this mess, so <laughs> let's go ahead and put him in charge of a new force. He can sort it out. He can sort it out. Surely he could sort it out. So he led around a thousand troops, and this was a mixture of enlisted troops as well as militia forces into a battle near the headwaters of the Wabash River on November 4th, 1791. Yeah, this one was even worse than Harmer's defeat. (laughs) Um, It's so bad 
It was so bad that the battle is most commonly referred to as St. Clair's defeat. Oh, Hmm. yeah. Of the thousand soldiers under his command, 632 were killed or captured. Wow. 264 were wounded. And at the time with, with army forces, they typically had followers like camp followers, um, washer people, families, sometimes uh, ladies to provide comfort to the men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the 200 to 250 camp followers that were with this group were not spared. 24 of them were killed wow. and 13 were wounded. So this is an absolute defeat. And Washington and Knox, when they get the news, of course, they are just you know, what do we do? And so they, they put their heads together. Okay. Let's, let's really think this through at this point. They had really been leaning on the commanders in the field. They've been, okay, we'll trust you. Whatever you say goes. (laughs) And after St. Clair's defeat, they decide let's do something different. We should probably take more of a direct role in this. Yeah. Tell them what to do. Maybe no one's using the word micromanage, but But here's the list. (laughs) Here's the list. Do not deviate from it at all. So they go to Congress and they say, look, okay, we've, we've had this small force. It got defeated. We had another small force. They got defeated. We need more troops. We need an actual sizable enlisted force. We need professionals. Let's not use a small force next time. (laughs) And and not just, you know, guys who, uh, okay, well, you you look like you can hold a gun. Here you go. Wrong way. Wrong way, Eric. (laughs) Turn it around. You could lose a finger. No, no, no. Do not put your hand in front of the barrel. <laughs> that doesn't help. It does look cool. <laughs> I have three thumbs to prove it. So out of this defeat and the, this this rethinking uh, was born the Legion of the United States, which was a force of over 5,000 men. And Andrew Linkletter described this force as follows, quote, The creation of the Legion of the United States remains a high point of military innovation in the country's history. This force was designed for the particular needs of fighting on the North American continent, but organized according to the most sophisticated European thinking on how best to use the three different arms of infantry, artillery, and cavalry. Henry Knox was largely responsible for the concept and in recommending the Legion to the president, he cited both classical authorities, and probably did a high five at that, Definitely. and 18th century experts. So, you know, here we really see Knox's training come into play. You know, he, he's like, this is what we really need to do if we're, if we're going to do this right. And we need to use the knowledge that we've got. We need to use he, the He knew his Scipio. He knew his Hannibal. I mean, what, what more do you need? Exactly. In in the 1790s. <laughs> That's all you need. That's all you need. Yeah. But um so this new force <laughs> that that Knox organizes was placed under the command of Major General Mad Anthony Wayne. That's um, that who, that's not a a positive precursor to his name, I'll be honest. I have a feeling you said that exact same thing i probably did (laughs) mad anthony oh no he's twitchy he's still twitching 
<laughs> no, we can't order elephants. But Hannibal said no. <laughs> but you know, Mad Anthony, you know, he he is one of those characters, and he he served under Washington in the Revolutionary War, and so with a name like Mad Anthony. Washington did take a moment and, and he was like, okay, do, do we really want this guy? But Knox was like, okay, look, I'll vouch for him. He's cool. He's cool. He can do this. So, you know, Washington gives in. Okay, we'll go with Mad Anthony. I mean, it was a toss up between Mad Anthony and Psychopathic Steve. So. <laughs> Maybe Mad, Mad Anthony was the way forward. Probably. He was, he was the way to go. The psychopath he just stood there and stared. <laughs> he didn't do nerd. anything. <laughs> Very <unnerving. laughs> And and especially at this point, they want action. So, but the thing was, Wayne, along with you know Knox, he was in that line of thinking. We need to really prepare before we just go marching. So, <laughs> it. it <laughs> we need. I mean, imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's train the soldiers. We need a plan. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this mad idea. <laughs> so Wayne, even though there was pressure, political pressure on the administration, okay, we, we need to have something happen. Wayne was like, no, we need to prepare. So it takes him a couple of years to build up the force. But when the Legion of the United States goes into action in the Battle of Fallen Timbers on August uh, 20th, 1794, the battle lasted just over one hour. And there were low casualty numbers, but basically this decimated the native Confederacy and their forces. It was a decisive victory for the U.S. It finally changed the you know how things were going in the Northwest Territory. And after the battle, native leaders were brought back to negotiations, which resulted in the Treaty of Greenville in 1795. And that established a firm boundary between what was native lands and those that were open to American settlement. Yeah, I'll be honest. I'm feeling a bit uh, of a mixed emotions about that victory. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like, yeah, US, but also... Uh... Mm. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, and, and that's the thing from our standpoint, you know, we we know where this goes. Yeah. And we know this, this was not a good thing for the native peoples in terms of their time and, and seeing things from the United States perspective, you know, this was celebrated as a victory, but again, this is the continuation of native peoples being forced further West off of land that had been theirs for generations. So um, when we get to the scoring, I, I think we, that's a conversation to have. Yeah. So, that was really, you know, between uh, you know, this this focus on the Northwest Territory, that consumed a great deal of Knox's time as Secretary of War. But also, he was a part of the political battles that were going on at the time. So, uh, as y'all discussed in the Washington episode, you know, Washington brought together this team of rivals, hmm. so to speak, and yeah. especially with with Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. Someone should write a story about that. It was uh, quite gripping stuff. You could even turn into a musical. You could. could. (laughs) Exactly. And so Knox, when they got to these cabinet discussions and 
you know, Jefferson was arguing one way, Hamilton was arguing the other. Knox tended to go with Hamilton and increasingly his he turned more towards the Federalist cause, you know, as these yeah. factions were being formed. He was especially key in the debate over whether the U.S. should remain neutral in the war between Great Britain and France. So, you know, at this point, um, France had launched the, the French Revolution had started, but they had the French Revolutionary Wars that were going on. Knox supported Hamilton's position on the matter, and it, it helped to strengthen Hamilton's position in the debate. And ultimately, the U.S. maintained a strict neutrality. Mm. in spite of previous treaties that had been signed with France, mm-hmm. pledging to come to their aid if they went to war. <laughs> so Hamilton said that, okay, they've had the revolution, the king is gone, the monarchy is abolished. Our treaties were really with the monarchy, not with the state of France. They were thrilled about that. Which, which is just ingenious. Oh, yes. It really yeah. is. It's like <laughs> when we said we would protect France, what we meant was... Their version of France that's no longer there. Can we say that? Can we get away with that? I think we can get away with that. That's fine, isn't it? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I'm king. I mean, we 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 had a revolution and established a, a republic, but you know, we'll we'll defend monarchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, 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 that's fine. <laughs> I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I still I still think they made the right call. Uh, mm. The U.S. at the time could not have got dragged in. It was so fragile. Uh, the 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 start of their political system. Um, like no one at the time, in their wildest imagination, probably would have guessed where the United States ended up a mere couple of hundred years later. And at that yeah. time, it was too fragile. I understand why they didn't get involved, but at the same time, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, not a good way to establish a good reputation. Nah, it's, it's really not. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll we'll abide by this tree, except when we don't want to. Yeah, but but yes, exactly. And and we've kind of already seen that, and especially with this focus on the War Department, militarily, the U.S. was not in a position to get involved at this point. There wasn't really a navy to speak of. Um, which we'll talk about in just a second, it it was still, to your point, Rob, I think that it was really the best decision and and possibly the only decision Mm -hmm. that they can make. But it also leaves this ambiguity, you know, and and that would cause problems moving down the road. Because especially like they, the Washington administration wanted to, keep relations going with the revolutionary government after saying, oh, well, we're not going to help you and abide by this treaty. And that causes problems. It's a very difficult situation when you're trying to start a new country and you've got Britain Mm -hmm. and France, the two giants, and you're essentially a nothing country because you only just exist. It's how do you keep both happy? You've got to keep relations going, ideally with the winning side. (laughs) Yeah. So... Yeah, and, and unfortunately, the winning side, Britain, have a bit of a be in their bonnet about the whole uh, <laughs> yes independence whole, thing. Yeah, you know? it's that whole revolution. Yeah, <laughs> we still haven't got over that, by the way. Just saying. No, it's, you, you should have seen Fourth of July in this country the other week. Oof. Day of shame. We call it the day of shame. That's what we call it. Yeah. We all wear black. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's. 
I know we're we're focusing on Knox, but you really do need to give credit to the the early government that they were able to navigate these waters. It was a very tricky time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and especially like Knox's role in this and and really pushing for he was really pushing this idea of a professional army. But in that he realized that you know he needed to think about the militia, he needed to think about the Navy. And so he was responsible for implementing the Militia Act of 1792, uh, which gave the president the authority to call out state militias to serve the nation. So as part of that, um, Knox did an evaluation of the readiness of the various militias, and he found that only 20% of militia forces were capable of arming themselves at their own expense. Oh, dear. So when you're trying to lean on militia forces that have no weapons, that's a problem. Because you get the idea that a lot of militias was like drunk guys at the bar just go, yeah, I'll fight. I've got a pitchfork. <laughs> Basically. And and Knox yeah. was like, yeah, that's just not going to work. So yeah. he went ahead and proposed that the federal government increase their purchase of imported weapons as well as establish facilities for the domestic production and stockpiling of weapons. So again, you know, we've, at at this point, we've got the war between Great Britain and France. Importing weapons can be a challenge. So he's like, why don't we build them here? Until mm. we can, let's import as many as we can, but let's really get domestic production up. Makes sense. And with that, he, of course, proposed, well, if we're going to make weapons here, we don't need to just turn around and sell them to somebody else. Let's go ahead and ban the export of domestically produced weapons. And Congress did act on his recommendation. So finally, Congress is starting to come around to this idea that, you know, we really do need to think about establishing a defense of the nation and and make it professional. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting twist because you get the, the there's, there's a balance of, well, we kind of need to keep our import coming a lot or export sorry we need we need that cash and that flow but actually we do need to defend ourselves as well exactly it's like a nice realization exactly and knox you know another thing that he proposed because you know at this point we were the u.s was starting to do more trading and and that was part of the neutrality proclamation we wanted to continue to trade with great britain and france you know not have to pick one or the other but the problem was, you know, there were fights on the high seas. American shipping would get involved in that. So there was an increased need for protection on the high seas. So Knox recommended the creation of a U.S. Navy and also the establishment of coastal fortifications for national defense. <gasps> a watch. <laughs> David Hasselhoff. We had yeah. to import him. <laughs> this is your uniform. Red little thing. What? <laughs> I ain't wearing that. That that was a key part of the Naval Act of 1794. <laughs> <laughs> Along with the establishment, uh, you know, the construction of the first six frigates that would become the beginning of the U.S. Navy. So with this, you know, there's one really big piece of Knox's career that we need to talk about as we're drawing towards the end of his time in the cabinet, and that's the Whiskey Rebellion. What? Oh, have you forgotten, Jamie? How can you rebel against whiskey? 
we had to skim over the Whiskey Rebellion in our episode because there was too much to talk about, and I it disappointed you at the time. Yeah. Oh, tell, tell, tell us more. <laughs> so with this, part of Alexander Hamilton's plan for getting the finances of the nation back in order included a tax on whiskey. Now, at the time... <laughs> Sorry, Jamie's face. <laughs> Why would you do such a thing? I have a feeling Hamilton is going to be losing points in his episode. <laughs> He's on zero. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what people in Western Pennsylvania and the West were thinking because they they Good. depended on whiskey, not just for drinking, uh, <laughs> although they did plenty of that. Yeah. <laughs> but basically because they it, it was hard at that point to transport you know, goods and, and, and crops and things like that. So they would distill into whiskey because whiskey in bottles was easier to transport than the crops that, that, that the, the whiskey was made from. And so it became, and especially at this time, um, this was a time before we had paper money, like we have it nowadays. It really folks relied on specie, which was, you know, actual gold or silver. But in the West, they didn't have that. And so whiskey became a pseudo currency because everybody knew what the price of whiskey was. And so, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll give you five bottles for that cow. (laughs) The whiskey standard. Of of course I'll paint your house. As long as you let me drink that bottle of whiskey. Yeah. (laughs) That we should do all current. We should do all transactions with whiskey now. Oh, we totally should. Could you imagine? It would be so good. Oh my god! Imagine teaching. But I don't think you should be allowed to hoard it. You've got to drink what you're, you're <laughs> straight away. Straight away. That's how it should be. <laughs> because because we don't want the the price of whiskey, the value of whiskey, to inflate. We we want exactly. to keep it in you, circulation. You you don't want people to stockpile it, so you gotta you gotta get rid of it immediately. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true with gold; it hangs around him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you know the the folks in the West were really upset. Um, it ended up in Western Pennsylvania. They started the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, this was a domestic insurgency. So to combat that, Washington had to call up the militia forces. So he had to put into effect the the Militia Act to get forces to march to Western Pennsylvania. Now, when it came time to do this, Washington looked around and he was like, has anybody seen Knox? (laughs) So Knox was not in Philadelphia at the time. He had actually drunk. (laughs) He he was enjoying a little whiskey. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So he had actually requested some time away um, in order to deal with some personal matters. And um, he had land in Maine in what's now Maine. At that point, it was still a part of Massachusetts. So he was away from the capital. Well, Washington sent word to Knox, hey, we've got some problems in Western Pennsylvania. You're the secretary of war. I really need you to come back now. Knox did not come back quickly. He delayed. And Washington kept sending word to him. Washington kept getting more upset. And finally, Washington said, you know what? Forget it. Hamilton, you're on. Take charge of the War Department. Let's go and deal with the Whiskey Rebellion. So we really get a sense at this time and reading 
some of Washington's letters that he was really disappointed at Knox. You know, he up until this point, Knox had been a trusted subordinate for decades. They had a, a strong relationship. He had always been able to count on Knox. But the problem was Knox at this point had been heading the War Department for nearly 10 years and the demands were increasing. You know, it, it, now with the Naval Act, there was no Naval Department. So the War Department was responsible for building the Naval frigates. They were increasing the size of the forces in order to deal with things in the Northwest Territory. There was just so much more to do than at any previous point in his career. And so Knox at this point is just exhausted. He's, he's got personal matters that he wants to deal with. He needs to deal with his finances because, and again, like at the time we see numerous public officials who, because they're so involved and and away from their homes and dealing with the public business, their personal affairs, their personal finances go you know, completely in shatters and, and, and they have to take time to actually deal with matters at home. So Knox finally says in late December, 1794, he finally shows up in Philadelphia and he's like, look, I need to go. I need to resign. And it didn't really come as much of a surprise to Washington because he he had been seeing how things were going. He had actually started approaching replacement candidates at the beginning of the year, like even before Mm. the whole Whiskey Rebellion and and that fiasco. He had started approaching folks about, you know, I may have a vacancy in the cabinet soon. Um, Would you be interested? So, so sorry, if you don't mind asking, did um, Washington replace Knox? with Hamilton before he resigned. Yes. So Hamilton was just kind of in an acting role, taking charge of the war department while Knox was away. But, you know, he, he didn't end up becoming secretary of war, but he had fingers in pies. And, and as you'll learn more about in the Hamilton episode, he he really liked dealing with every department. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He, He wasn't just staying with the treasury. That explains the, the new department for R&B that sprung up just after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So on December 31st, 1794, after 10 years in charge of the War Department, Knox finally left office and he ended his tenure as the first Secretary of War. So after this, Knox really gets to his own business. He settles on his land in Maine. He builds a three-story mansion named Montpelier, which was also James Madison's Montpelier, but this was the Northern Montpelier. <laughs> <laughs> he he focused Gosh, on <laughs> he focused on uh, business matters such as cattle farming, shipbuilding, brick making, and frontier real estate speculations, just like everybody did at the time. He really, he, he, we see at this point in his life, he started to get into conflicts over the years because rather than dealing with folks who rented his lands, and, and so that was one of the ways that he made money, he would rent out his lands to folks. Instead of dealing with them directly, he'd send intermediaries to confront folks. He didn't, he didn't want to deal with it. He didn't want to be the bad guy. 
But these intermediaries were not always the most pleasant folks. And so Knox starts to get a bad reputation in the communities. And apparently a group of folks who rent it from him at one point threatened to burn his house down. <laughs> That's how upset they were at him. They didn't, but they at least threatened to. They, they lit a few matches while he's standing outside. Like, I'll do it. I'll do it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> very, very burnable, that house you're in there. Be a shame if... Uh, very, be a shame if this... Very dry wood. Something happened. But Knox did have one point where he was potentially going to go back into military service. So, you know, during his tenure in the cabinet, you know, tensions with France were heating up and it ended up when John Adams became president the quasi war started. There was never a declaration of war with France, but we were, it, it was looking like we were getting closer and closer to war. There were actually naval battles. So, r- roughly, yeah. how old is uh, Knox at the moment? That's weird. I was literally thinking that same question about six seconds ago. Sink. Yeah. Yeah. So, at this point, he was in his late 40s. Oh, yeah. right. So, he's managed to do a lot of this quite young then. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and so, Congress decides, okay, you know, if we're going to war with France, we need to up our game in terms of our military. And we need to bring somebody back who is a rallying force for the nation. So Mm. Washington was brought back. Um, At this point, he was retired. He was commissioned as commander in chief of the army in 1798. Now, the problem with this, so as he was going to be building this new force they needed to get some new generals under him to kind of be subordinates and so knox was one of the folks that was being looked at as being one of the three new generals that were being created experience experience except that even though congress and john adams the president thought that knox was more experienced and technically was higher on the um, the officers list. So he he was a higher rank than Hamilton. And so Knox should be the second in command. Washington was like, no, I want Hamilton as my second in command. Ooh. Yes. So. <laughs> pesky Hamilton. Damn you, Hamilton. Knox was not too pleased with this. And so he wrote to Washington basically saying, look, (laughs) check out my rhymes. (laughs) This Hamilton guy, you know, yeah, he's great at, at R and B and he's got the musical going, (laughs) but he's not really, he's, he's never really been in command like this. You really need somebody who you can trust. It's a logical point to make. Logical point. Washington said, no, Hamilton no. is my guy, and you can either like it or not. I don't care. Is that because is that because Washington probably trusted Hamilton more after the whole exactly. middle finger? Yeah, exactly. You know, he, at this point, he was still he didn't feel how you know the, how trustworthy Knox was. Yeah, and so he knows that Hamilton will do the job. So. Knox sent this letter to Washington and I mean, you can tell just how upset he was at this. Um, He wrote quote, 
For more than 20 years, I must have been acting under a perfect delusion, conscious myself of entertaining for you a sincere, active, and invariable friendship. I easily believed it was reciprocal. Nay more, I flattered myself with your esteem and respect in a military point of view. But I find that others, greatly my juniors in rank, have been, upon a scale of comparison, preferred before me. Ouch. Burn. Yeah. He is really, he's like, dude, we've been through so much together. And I thought we were friends. I thought you respected me. And this is how you're going to treat me. And so ultimately, Knox said, if I've got to be under Hamilton, no, I'm not going to accept the new commission. So he doesn't go into this new force. And this ends up being the the end of Knox and Washington's friendship. Like they will not write to each other again. Washington didn't live too much longer after this, but they never reconciled. And so, you know, at this point, you know, Knox is getting into his 50s. He goes temporarily back into public life. Um, he represents his area in Maine in the Massachusetts State Assembly. But he ends up losing his seat to a local blacksmith. He ends up being named as a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1805. But that's really all, like, mostly he's just dealing with his own personal affairs until October 1806. While eating, he swallowed a chicken bone, which became lodged in his throat which caused a fatal infection, and he died wow. on October 25th, 1806, at the age of 56. He was so the the chicken took him down. Yeah, he was killed by a chicken. The chicken took him down. Wow. <laughs> so the British Army couldn't, the French couldn't, but a chicken <laughs> But a chicken. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So we, we've, we've come across in, in our podcast uh, a couple of instances where someone dies like that, and it always just throws me slightly. Yeah, <laughs> just to be so what? simple. Hang on. A, a chicken? How do you swallow a chicken bone? I mean, I, I eat chicken my, fairly regularly. My grandma almost choked on a chicken bone. Well, obviously, yeah, it's possible because people possible. do it, but no. I don't. How do you do it? I, I would ask my grandma, but she died. Chicken bone? <laughs> no, no, not chicken bone. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll leave no. that potentially horrific conversation. No, it's just just, just Alzheimer's and old <laughs> oh, age. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Betty. The, the the chicken didn't get her. <laughs> no. no, no. But unfortunately, Knox, it it the chicken bone, and 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 that's the thing is, wow. it's like I'm like you, Rob. It's like, how does this happen? And should I really be worried about this? <laughs> because I, I was I was eating yesterday. I was eating a chicken bone. Uh, I chicken was bone eating soup. a a half half a roast chicken. I ate yesterday. Wow, it was very nice. Enjoyed bones my half all. a roast chicken. Yeah. Uh, but at no point did I fear that one of those bones would end up inside me <laughs> because <laughs> I ate the chicken off the bone. Uh, but obviously, it happens. Because chicken bones like get quite soft when you're cooking them, though, don't they? They're not. It's not like beef bone. They're bigger. Yeah, I suppose so. Like a fish bone. So I guess you could. 
I don't know if you ate the wrong thing. But you and say I, he didn't he didn't choke to death. It, it caused infection. an infection. It caused an infection. Yeah. Maybe his throat it, then or esophagus. Oh, nasty. Oof. Not a good way to go. No. He ended up, he was buried on his estate in Maine with full military honors. His wife, Lucy, actually lived on for nearly two more decades. Unfortunately, um, when he passed away, his finances were still pretty shaky. So she spent the rest of her life trying to get things in order, pay off his creditors. And she ended up having to sell portions of the family property. The house in Maine that he built, Montpelier, was actually demolished in, in 1871. But in the 20th century, they a group actually got together and did a reconstruction not far from the site of the original house. And nice. I've actually been to the reconstruction, oh, reconstructed oh. Montpelier. And it's, it's really cool. Nice. It's really interesting. But that is the life of Henry Knox. It's mm. good. That's a good life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now we get to the portion where we are going to rank him. So starting with um, the first category is the whole picture. And so in this, um, this round looks at his overall career and character. And so each of us can rank him um, up to 10 points. Um, and we'll see how he goes. So in terms of kind of his overall career and character, um, Rob and Jamie, what do you think of Mr. Knox? You see, always hard doing the first one, isn't it? It really is. Um, Jamie, I think think you're in a better position to, to jump in here because you're used to doing this. I usually have half an idea before yeah, getting to I, I, I can make it up on the spot. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think I, I'm look in, in terms of the whole picture, what did he do for the US? Well, he led the military expand. Well, the, the idea of there being a singular military. Um, he, he tried to at least, well, it certainly felt like he was trying to support the native cultures that were there at the time rather than just railroad. Um, and he wanted this idea of like a unified country. That's what it felt like. It's like, no, we're, we're a country. We can do this. Don't be scared of having this. Mm-hmm. You do get the impression he's one of those rare, rare breeds in history where you've got essentially a stereotypical academic figure who also is very hands-on and practical, mm-hmm. which mm. obviously exists, but you tend not to see them in stereotypes so often. Uh, so it's, it's refreshing to see someone like that. Um, I, I think, so, so just to be clear, this round is his personality and what he has achieved in his life, not worrying about political stuff. Is that exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. This is more, you know, his so, overall okay. kind of state. In which case, I think he would, I think he'd be very pleased with himself. Yeah. I think... If the young version of him working in the bookshop found out exactly where he ended up and what he achieved, he'd look back and he'd he'd nod knowingly at that young young boy in the bookshop. Jamie's doing something. It's my score. Oh, you're already doing a score. You're holding up fingers. Um, yeah, I, I. You get the impression that he, like Jamie said, he worked. 
he worked to try and unify things and create this new country. Uh, knowing what I know of the time period, a lot of people were not necessarily doing that. So, yeah. yeah. It's quite modernist in some ways. Mm. That's why I'd be happy giving him an eight for me. Oh, you're going for eight. Go for eight. That's an eight for Jamie. How about you, Rob? Uh, I'm not going to go quite so high, just because I also vaguely know the other people you're going to be covering, and I want to leave a little bit of room. Uh, but, I mean, estab- essentially establishing the War Department is huge. Um, I'm going to go seven. And so since there are two of you, uh, basically I will take your two scores um, and add them divide by two. And so a total from y'all of 7.5. And I think I am going to join Rob in the seven. Um, I I think that he really does, you know, in his overall career and, and what he was able to achieve, I think that it was critical. I think that he provided leadership. I think he provided a path forward that, you know, was very important to highlight. And, and to your point, I think that he was, he was also, he wouldn't be what we consider in, in terms of, you know, 21st century ethics completely there, but he did at least Mm. see, he had concerns about native peoples um, and the impact that, the United States was having on them and, and, you know, and settlement. Yeah. For the time, that's, that's what you want to see. Uh, No one person can completely change what's happening. What you need is many people holding that kind of view. And he was one person holding that kind of view that potentially might make things better in the future. So, yeah. All right. So now to our next round, the go-getter. And this round really focuses on his impact as a cabinet member. You know, so, you know, what we think about his role in that secretary of war position and, and really thinking of, um, you know, once the cabinet is formed and his role in, in Washington's administration. You see, this is an interesting one because it kind of depends on what viewpoint you take. Um, I'd say the average modern American would say, yes, he did a really good job pushing uh, ideals through that eventually won out. But I could also fully understand why people at the time would be very nervous around the direction he was taking things. Mm -hmm. And I can see where they're coming from as well. Um, So you've got that. But you can't deny that he was effective at what he did for a majority of the time. It's interesting towards the end where he just went, no, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And how much do we take that way? uh, Do we take points away from that? I don't think so. I think it's just like self-awareness is like, I I, I don't think I can do this anymore. It's like the powers that be are, it's out of my control because people will be fight for things when it's futile and make things worse. Personally. Yeah, I mean, again, huge first Secretary of War, yeah. starting a trend, like really 
embedding things that will become so important in the future. Yeah. But that's essentially what this uh, spin-off series is going to be about. Everyone's going to be starting something new, aren't yeah. they? Uh, oh, the first ones are always so hard to. Remember. I think I think a healthy. Oh, I, I can't decide between six or seven. That's my 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 view. I'm going for seven. You're going for seven. Because okay. it's a twist it slightly. The pacifist in me really wants to believe in, <laughs> in the view that was against him. Yeah. I'd love to believe that actually the standing army wasn't needed. It didn't need to grow but the realist in me, it's like, no, no, they definitely needed to move away from the militias. It just it wasn't did, sustainable. Yeah. Uh, I think ultimately the country was stronger because he was there. Um, seven. Seven. So 14 is seven as a total point for us. And I am going to join both of you in that seven. Oh. Um, so 14 points there. And I, I, I definitely... And and that's the thing that is fascinating to me about Knox is that in traditional accounts of Washington's cabinet, it really focuses more on Jefferson and Hamilton. But Mm -hmm. you really get a sense when you start looking into what Knox was doing at the War Department, how much of a crucial role he played in the administration yeah. um, and how closely he worked with Washington to craft policy, to get things going, to really create yeah. these institutions. And so he really is impactful in that role. I think more so than he typically gets credit for. Yeah. Things that are there today and the exactly. whole world is seeing. So Exactly. You know, the, the, the crucial role that he played in starting the Navy of getting a, a professional army going West Point, um, even though he didn't, you know, it, it, he wasn't responsible for West Point. He still it was his vision and him just continuing yeah. to push for and these that, things. That becomes so important later on. Yes, it really does. Um, yeah, no, I'm happy with that skill. So now we get to talk about the hot seat, which is, you know, this is where we start to look at kind of his disgraceful behavior, um, you know, actions that he committed. Um, It doesn't necessarily have to be in his tenure of office in the cabinet, but just, you know, any kind of disgrace that, that he had. And I think here is where we, we have the conversation about, you know, what the policies that the war department were really involved with the impact that they had on native Mm. peoples. Quick question before we start is, Mm -hmm. is this minus numbers? It is is minus numbers. Yes. Because in our Roman series, these are positive numbers, which (laughs) is quite strange comparing the two. Um, but yeah, no, in our American series, it's minus. So Time yeah. is a great forgiver, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, what have you got? 
I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten how much fun the earlier episodes yeah. were during this <laughs> <laughs> round where you just go, oh, that's really bad. Um, yeah, come on, Jerry, give, give us some direction here. So, and, and it really gets to, you know, and this is the, the, the struggle that, you know, we have looking back on these times, having the knowledge of where all this ends up. I think that he, for the time, was much more well-intentioned and he he did yeah. see that there were problems that you know, most people of the time didn't. They didn't think about these things. Um, but also, I, I think, you know, we... we can't ignore that these policies that he helped put in place continued continued the problem continued to force native peoples off their lands and the fact that some of the agents of the war department when doing these negotiations were you know they they would use any means that they could whether it was you know let's let's bring liquor mm-hmm. let's get whoever will sign a piece of paper or put an x on it let's do whatever we need to in order to get that land i think that we do have to take off a couple of points for that yes yep i agree with that um from what you've covered today it does sound like he was one of the times thinkers yeah mm-hmm Someone who didn't blindly just what am I trying to say? Follow, uh, follow the 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 racist trend that was going yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. Um, it is so easy to fall into the trap of saying everyone back then was racist, so therefore yeah. it's fine. Uh, because yes, lots of people were racist back then. Lots of people are racist now. Uh, it doesn't make it fine either back then or now. Uh, and people's perceptions of racism change over time, and everyone appears more racist back then than they do now. Although, to be honest, not as much as I'd argue. I'd argue not as much as some people think. Mm. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm rambling now. Uh, it definitely could be worse. That's what I'm going to say. I think I think he tried to mediate a dodgy situation, didn't he? Mm. he? There is also nothing else that stands out uh, in his life. Uh, there are no other big scandals. He doesn't. Um, I'm trying to think of many of the other scandals we've come across in, in the American series, but there are there are many things you can do in your life where in this round you'd go, "Ooh, you shouldn't have done that." He seems fairly a straight. Yeah, straight lace. Apart from, could we argue the fact that he just abandoned his duty exactly. during the whiskey uh, whiskey rebellion? I mean, that's another area where we can mm-hmm. start picking up points potentially. Um, I, I'm going to go a base level of minus two for just underlying nastiness 
that's happening in the time. But I'm going to put another point on for the fact that he essentially abandoned his post. So was, minus three. I was going to put on minus two because I thought yeah. that's that somewhat quite well. So uh, uh, 2.5. So that's minus 2.5. And I am going to go with a minus two as well. Um, I, I, I think that despite his well intentions and, and part of me wonders, you know, in his awareness, you know, did he see with some of the, some of what was going on, he kind of saw where this was heading. Mm. And I think he did try and do all that he could, but ultimately Ultimately, it still happened. Ultimately, we still had the, you know, we had the Battle of Fallen Timbers. We had the Treaty of Greenville. There was still this this push towards westward expansion. Yeah, and you can't be in charge of the War Department and such things happen under you and not take some of the flack for that. Of course. Exactly. So I definitely think some, some points need to be taken off. And likewise with the um, with the whiskey rebellion, it, it really does come to okay if if you were done with your post and and tired, ready to go, go ahead and say that sooner rather than just yeah. not show up when the president calls yeah. and says I need you back. Yep. No, I'm just going to take some time to to Which- do my own thing put you on the spot here and i might be wrong because i'm half remembering something that is the only time in american history where a president led troops in battle well towards battle no battle took place um is that because knox wasn't around that washington found he had to step up or do you think he would have been there anyway i think he would have been there anyway um it was really and 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 that's the thing and again thinking of this how people saw George Washington, he was the rallying figure and Washington knew if he showed up in Western Pennsylvania, it would really make folks think twice. Yeah. Are you really going to oppose George Washington? Mm. But he wanted Knox to be there by his side hmm. Which makes and sense. he wasn't there. Hmm. Yeah. So, that gets us a negative 4.5. So we're taking those points off. And now we get to the tenure of office. And basically, this is just the, the time that he was in the cabinet. Now, with Knox, there is this interesting, because he was the, the secretary at war in the Confederation government. But since this is focused on the cabinet and the you know his tenure during the presidency i'm not counting that towards his tenure of office because that was you know it, it was a different role it was a different yeah. government <laughs> so in terms of his tenure so he was secretary of war from september 12th 1789 to december 31st 1794 so that rounds out to around 5 years and now we do have three bonus categories. The first bonus is if the cabinet member held more than one post in the cabinet. 
The second bonus is if they served in more than one administration. And the third is if the cabinet member became president. None of those apply to Knox. Yeah, they're good bonus points, though. I like those <laughs> as ban- bonus rounds. Uh, but no, Knox gets none. He gets none. And so that brings us to a grand total of 29 points for Henry Knox. Now we have to ask ourselves the question, thinking of everything that we've discussed and everything that we've, we've talked about with Knox's life, do you think that this cabinet member is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars? Yes. Well, I'm, I'm just going to point out how many other street-fighting gang members who are studying advanced mathematics are there. I mean, you, you've got... It, it's very well-rounded with Knox. He clearly knows how to get around the battlefield, but he also knows the books. It's, uh, yeah, I, I'm happy for him to be there. But also, you push change that model a lot of American, modern American policies and politics now. I mean, it's, it's he, he was a precursor to everything. Well, not everything, but a, a chunk of, you know, your, your tax dollars. I, I will say that Knox's and Hamilton's vision of the future certainly won out in the end. Yeah. How much that is a direct impact of them is more debatable because a lot <laughs> happened in between yeah. now and then. Uh, as we've covered in our podcast. Um, but I definitely think Knox would be happy if he woke up in today's society and saw what had happened with the country. I think he'd be pleased. Um, I, I think he did. I think he did a good job. You could certainly do worse for your first war secretary. So yeah, yeah, yeah I'm going to say yes. And I am in complete agreement. I, I think that you know, in terms of his life, it's, he's a fascinating character to, to discuss. And especially the, the intersection that he had with so much of American history during the revolution, during the early Republic. I think that studying him and his life is, it it really helps to give us an understanding of that time and, and to see his impact on that time. I think that he does earn his seat at the table. So congratulations, Henry Knox. You have earned your seat at the table. Woo! There we go. Got one. And so with that, um, I'd like to thank Rob and Jamie again for being here on this episode of the special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. Um, Highly recommend you checking out Totalis Rankium, uh, both the American President series and the Roman Emperors. Um, there is so much in history that is just fascinating, scary, interesting to look at. And oh, it really is. Yeah. Yes. Some of it's funny as well, which is <laughs> what we're here for. All the deaths. <laughs> there, there is much to laugh about. There is. Highly recommend it. Thank thank you so much, guys. And with that, I will say goodbye. Okay. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Bye.
Sirs, I have terrible news. What news do you bring, sir? I've just come from Knox's dining room. He is dead. Dead? Dead. How did he die? I have no idea, but in his hand, he was eating a prawn sandwich. Prawn sandwich? Yes. Do you think he he choked on, on the prawn sandwich? Oh, dear God, I hope not. I mean, that's embarrassing. It really is. Wasn't he the guy who shot off his own fingers? He did shoot so... off his own fingers. I mean, his embarrassment has followed him throughout his entire life, to be fair. But we can't. We can't let this stand. No. We must become the handkerchief over his death. That, that covers the eyes of misery and shame. We must talk up his death. What's a more honorable way for him to have died? Obviously, glorious battle against our enemies. But we're not fighting anybody right now. Damn it. That, that's a problem. How about, um, maybe he choked on something different. During a glorious battle? There's no battles, you just said that. Ah, uh, fine. What's, what's the most, um, what's the most manly thing to choke on? Are you thinking like a, uh, like a, a cow's thigh bone? Well, that's too big. Maybe a tin of soup. But how would he... How how would he choke on a tin of soup? No, it's got to be something. We, we've got to have something, some kind of animal. What do we usually eat? Black bear! Well, yes, yes, we do eat black bear, but that's just because one died outside well, the hut. They, they eat us more than we eat them, to be yeah. fair. Yes. We need something that is it's big enough not to seem pathetic, but small enough that you could feasibly choke on it. Salmon? Salmon could work. No, no, I don't think salmon. It's a bit too fishy. <laughs> a bit too classy. We need we need good manly meat. That's what we need. Manly meat. Come on, come on. What did you eat yesterday? Well, I had black bear. Oh, of course we did. We all ate black bear. Had a um, dead one in the road. Um, chicken. Chick no. Chicken works. I had a cousin once died from chicken. Yeah, but he was pecked to death. Yes, but they will do. What are you thinking? I think chicken could work. I mean, everybody knows how vicious chickens are. That's if, true. If Henry Knox was going to be taken down, by damn, he was going to be taken down by a chicken. Not just any chicken. A Florentine Varimismal. Oh. The most aggressive old chickens. They're so aggressive. Yes, no, that's the kind of thing that would take Noxy down. Yes. Yes. Here's, here's to Henry Knox, taken down by a chicken. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor, and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. 
Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.